PBS's The Great American Read. It's designed to spark a national conversation about reading, literacy, and the books that have inspired, moved, and shaped us. The Great American Read is actually an eight-part PBS series and nationwide competition that explores the joy of books and the power of reading through the lens of America's 100 best-loved books, as voted on by the public. PBS's series, The Great American Read, will run Tuesdays at 8 p.m. from September 11th through October 23rd. And you can join your friends from WQLN for a big day of books Saturday, September 15th, 2018 from 10 a.m. till 3 p.m. at the Blasco Memorial Library. More information is available at wqln.org. And WQLN is proud to present this episode of Better Than Monkeys in conjunction with PBS's The Great American Read. Today's episode of Better Than Monkeys will feature published author Anna Rose Welch. Hello, everybody. This is Brian Hanna, the host of Better Than Monkeys. And before we begin this episode of Better Than Monkeys, I just wanted to add this little disclaimer. There's some saucy talk. Some adult words. It's not very PG-13, just for a few moments here and there. But if you've got any small ones, you might want to keep them out of the room for this episode of Better Than Monkeys. What is it that makes us as humans different? Even shall I say better than monkeys? Well, maybe not much these days, but we do have a few things going for us as a species. Things that make us more special, more human than our primate cousins. It's our ability to think and to create. It's the arts and sciences that make our lives better and make us smarter and, yes, more special in many ways than those pesky monkeys. Hello, everybody. I'm Brian Hanna, and on today's episode of Better Than Monkeys, we get a visit from an award-winning published author. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? In this episode, she'll take us back to the beginning, tell us all about how she first got bit by the literary bug, how she found her voice as a poet, how she juggles her career and writing, and she gives us some great advice on how to break into the literary world as a writer. Today's guest is poet Anna Rose Welch. I'm sure at one point or another, most of us have tried our hand at writing, either in school as an exercise or writing a love letter to our favorite person or maybe crafting song lyrics. But what does it take to really make it as a poet, to really put yourself out there so the entire universe can see deep into your soul? Well, today's guest on Better Than Monkeys does just that, Hannah Rose Welch published author, award-winning author. This is her first book, We the Almighty Fires. It's a book of poetry that she bears her soul for all of us to see. Takes a lot of guts to do that, doesn't it? I had the opportunity to sit down with Anna for just a couple of hours, and she really opened up about what it's like to be an award-winning published author, where her inspiration comes from, how she juggles her career and being a poet, and she has some great advice for upcoming young authors and their parents. You don't want to miss one minute of this episode of Better Than Monkeys, featuring published author Anna Rose Welch. Joining me live in the studio, well, it won't be live by the time this airs, but joining <laughs> me in the WQLN studios is award-winning published author Anna Rose Welch, author of We the Almighty Fires, uh, 
It's the winner of the 2016 Alice James Award. Hi, Anna. How are you? Hi. <laughs> Very good. How are you, Daryl? So let's start with the Alice James Award. What's the Alice James Award? So it's an annual contest that is put on by uh, the publisher, right, Alice James Books, which is based in Maine. Um, and it's held once a year. It's a national contest. It might actually be international. Um, and so it's essentially for anyone who has a manuscript of poetry out there that is, they feel, ready to be published, right? They take a chance um, and they submit that manuscript to Alice James and some magic happens <laughs> behind the doors, right? Um, and then Hopefully, if all goes well, you know, they like your manuscript and you're selected as the winner, which, you know, and ends up leading to the publication of that manuscript into a book. So this manuscript, was it originally written for this purpose or is it one you've just been kind of... Uh what do they call it? Selling, walking door to door, shopping around. Shopping around. Yeah, um, it's it was definitely shopped around quite a bit, um, and and so I mean the manuscript itself had been written. A majority of it was written when I was in grad school, so and, and the year after. So we're talking 2013, 20, 2012, 2013, 14. Um, and then for about two years, I mostly was just playing around with it and submitting it places. My advisor in grad school, when I was working on my thesis, was like, look, this is ready, you know here just start offering it to the world be prepared right once it's out there it's out there uh and, and people are gonna hold it and they're gonna read it um but you know she said it's it's there you should start trying and so when i left grad school i would i was writing some new stuff that ended up in the book and then i was also rearranging the poems and taking poems out and putting them back in and then taking the same poem out that i had just put back in and then you know it was kind of a vicious cycle and I would start submitting it to a number of different places. Um, there are a lot of contests like this out there. Um, a lot of presses like Alice James Small, they're, they're generally pretty small. Some of them are based um, at universities. Uh, a lot of them are, some of them can be, you know, a labor of love funded by um, an independent uh, nonprofit, um, a small literary magazine might have some contests, that kind of thing. Um, and you can, you take your unfinished manuscript and you just submit it um, to a bunch of them. And it, it can take people a variety of time, you know, time to, to get it picked up. I was, I was definitely one of the lucky ones. It took about two and a half years to get it picked up. What's interesting is I submitted it two, maybe three times to the same award. Um, and the third year was the first time I'd ever heard anything, you know, apart from the past couple of years that had been rejected, you know, by that press. But do you so. submit the entire manuscript or yeah. do you just submit one or two poems and they go, oh, her stuff is nice and then they call you to send more? It depends on the press. So a lot of university presses um, will operate in that function, right? They will, you query them and so you send them a description of the book and a couple of poems and they get a feel for it and if it fits with what they generally publish or is of interest to them then they'll reach out to you and you can submit more the whole manuscript in this case for a lot of the kind of nationwide contests similar to this you send in the whole manuscript and there's generally a fee that goes along with it right um, a reading fee and you submit it and you wait for a few months and then there's all kinds of screening processes Sometimes they have a visiting guest editor or like a, a guest judge. Other times they have an editorial board that makes the final say, read through the manuscript and pick the ones that they, the finalists that they like and then 
inwardly discuss until they come to a winner or, you know, some famous writer that they've picked out of the masses, you know, to judge will get the final pile of manuscripts and will make that decision themselves. It's, it highly depends, you know, on the press and what they do. So you were one of the lucky ones, but we're obviously talking poetry here. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there's different paths for different types of artists, different mm -hmm. genres. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we're talking poetry here, we see a lot of novels, a lot of fiction, a lot of nonfiction. Uh, of course, uh, you know, every once in a while somebody hits it big, uh, like a Dan Brown or something. Mm -hmm. But rarely do we hear of poets hitting big. You know, we, <laughs> we know, of course, of the poet laureates of the United States. We hear about them all the time. But uh, rarely does a poet hit it big. So is this something you were planning to get rich at at some point <laughs> in your career? I wish. Is, this, was it a, <laughs> is it a career path or is this like a labor of love path? Mm. I think ultimately it depends on who you are as a person. But I also think that poetry has become even just within the past couple of years has become a lot more open. So when I first started out, right, it was never something I thought that would be a straight career path for me. I wasn't going to be the next author of Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey or Harry Potter. And poetry definitely doesn't have that kind of, at least I don't think, have that kind of mass, know, mass, 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 yeah, um, mass draw. What a lot of people plan to do is they go to school or they they write and write and write and they either work a side job you know to kind of support themselves which is what I do right they work full-time or part-time and then there are others that go and and pursue the masters that pursue the PhD that pursue the academic job right the the tenure track uh, position at a university is the is the big thing right that everybody wanting to get into academia wants and it's incredibly hard nowadays to to get that the academic climate has changed drastically especially in the humanities field right adjuncting has become kind of the new norm uh, and that's a very hard way to make a living so for me I went into my MFA program at Bowling Green State University and I thought well what I'd ultimately like to do is write poems because that's what I love to do but I'm gonna need to make some money to do that right so what I had to do in grad school was teach and so they kind of put me in a classroom with 20 young bright-eyed students that were staring at me like I held their lives in, the, in my hands and I was looking at them like they held my my life in their hands and and uh, you know I had to teach them things and that was something that uh, just didn't sit with me well you know it wasn't my it just wasn't my calling and I learned that very quickly <laughs> um, I think over time maybe I could have you know but it wasn't something that I wanted to, to spend my life doing and so I got my master's degree I got out of school but what you see a lot of now is there are a lot of different paths for people in poetry right and in creative writing in general there is that academic path right that you can get your PhD or a master's or you can and you can pursue the academic job you can be like me and work in something completely opposite of poetry and spend the evening hours writing and reading and, and living life, right? Or there are some poets that are able to make it, you know, doing the part-time job or living the fellowship life, right? You can apply for fellowships that will fund you for a year or two years to I, some of them involve teaching at a certain college or university. Some of them just gift you the time to spend crafting your art, working on a specific new project that you might have. So there are ways that people can make money from it. And as far as fame, there's definitely, there is definitely a, a famous circle, right, in the poetry world. And it's, I think that has, 
the twi- you know, the universe of social media has kind of made it that case, you know. So you have a lot of different people, a lot of different vocal styles. The the poetry world has kind of broken open. You know, it's it's really it's about embracing a lot of just diverse experiences and perspectives and uh, there are scores of online literary journals now so you can google a writer or a poet or poems that you like and find their entire body of work half you know a poet's entire body of work online because they've published in so many different journals um, and those journals are right there at your fingertips and so you can very easily and, and on Twitter right there are writers sharing everything all the time is it too much um, it depends on the day. It's like oversaturation yeah. of, a, of, mm-hmm. of a market. It, mm-hmm. Could it get to the point where there's so many people throwing poetry mm. that nobody's listening anymore? That's a scary question, actually. But I, I mean, it is definitely a reality we could face. I, 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 def, I don't think that it's going to be the end, right, of poetry. I don't think it's going to make it that we all have to compete, right, for, for the same. I mean, we're all competing in some way for similar prizes and similar recognition. But at the end of the day, it is such a subjective thing, you know, that I don't necessarily think that, you know, what what works for one big crowd of people is going to work for another big crowd, right? And does it really matter if, if it's an art that's just dear to you, if it's something where... Uh, you're maybe not intending on becoming rich from your tones. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe this is something where um, it's okay if nobody's listening. I think that's definitely the case. I mean, I have my my days where I'm definitely a diva. <laughs> you can talk to the people I know who, who know me very well, who know that, you know, every I think every poet does want attention in some way. Some of them, you know, it, and some maybe don't, you know. It, it This world is kind of full of a lot of anxious people, you know. It can be... It's a daunting prospect putting, you know, your, your kind of your heart on the page and saying, here you go, world. You know, you're either going to love this, you're going to hate it, or you're not going to pay any attention to it. And of those three, you're going to hope that somebody loves it, right? And that well, somebody you know will. it. Somebody yeah. will. No matter what, somebody will. Mm-hmm. They say that about music. You could uh, mm-hmm. uh, be a, a very awkward musician and somebody is just going to find you <laughs> yeah. at chanting. Uh, exactly. You know, it's yeah. probably the same thing with, you, mm-hmm. know, you know, I may not be a big fan of certain fiction novels, mm-hmm. but I might be a big fan of yeah. some true life crime dramas. Exactly. You know, so there's always going to be somebody out there, but it's getting it in their hands. That's the hard part. And I think that, you know, with the social culture we have today, as I was saying, social media has been a huge platform for a lot of people to kind of succeed at that, right? And it's not necessarily just with their own work. There's this phrase that's going around a lot now that's, you know, being called a literary citizen, right? And that involves sharing a huge array of writing, right? Not just your own and not just that of your friends, but when you read a poem that you really like, take a picture and post it on Twitter or on Facebook, write book reviews, you know, volunteer your time for, for certain things like, um, you know, working at a, a local writing facility or retreat or, you know, offer your, there's a, an online literary journal that has a, um, it's like a little fellowship program during the summer, right? That, you know, they have volunteer writers and they pair them up with high schoolers, you know, that that want to be poets. Kind of someday. sharing the craft. Yeah, exactly. And so you mentor, right? It's a it's a mentor program. 
Um, and so, th- you know, there's there's a lot of emphasis now today on being a literary citizen, a good literary citizen. And in some ways, I've heard people argue that a good way to even get your own hands in someone else's book is to help promote the world that you yourself are working within, right? I don't necessarily think that I'm the best example of that, uh, you know, just working full time and it's I'm not a social media guru. I like to stalk social media, you know, scroll through and scroll through and, and just kind of like things here and there and retweet things that I find funny, like videos of cats and, and poems that I like. But it's 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 a very, you know, like you almost, I think, have to have a certain type of personality or or really kind of put your mind to it that okay you know this is I'm gonna do this I just haven't (laughs) (laughs) you have time you're young (laughs) you're listening to better than monkeys a production of WQLN radio so how about it are you a literary citizen do you share your favorite books or your favorite poems with your friends with your family do you discuss your favorite books or your favorite poem or your favorite literary publication with your friends and family. What are you doing to spread the word that reading is important? Well, we're going to talk to Anna a little bit more, and we're also going to get her to read a little bit of some of her poetry for us in this next segment of Better Than Monkeys. Let's talk about your book for just a second here. I got a copy in my hands, and after I read it, I lent it to Hallie, our resident uh, wordsmith here at WQLN, (laughs) and Hallie screamed with joy the next morning when she told me how great the book was, and she promptly went and got a copy for herself. Um, And she bought it online to make sure that you you receive some online accolades. But um, it's a great book. It's titled We the Almighty Fires. Why don't you just give us like a little overview of your book so it's a collection of poems um a very brief collection of poems one of my friends called it svelte which i kind of liked it's um a lot of what i'm doing in this book and there there are a lot of different themes that go throughout it right but i was raised um, in the lutheran church and i don't think i really realized how much of an impact that had um and i say this not really a regular churchgoer today right spirituality is something that's still very important to me and the more i write the more i realize that but i don't think i realized how much it had impacted me until i started to write in grad school and there just ended up being a lot of a lot of religious themes to my work and a lot of questioning of the stories that i had read or heard about i applied a a feminist perspective to a lot of it Um, you know there's a series of poems in here in the voice of Noah's wife who was only referred to as Noah's wife six times in the Bible you know she doesn't get a name she doesn't have a voice and in my book she's really not thrilled right about being stuck on a boat with every animal and insect known to mankind you know Um, and a husband who's talking to this God who's flooding the world but a lot of this is dedicated to questioning the notion of being created by this all-powerful being and believing in something higher than ourselves but also maintaining our our grasp on free will right how does free will and intellect and, and sensuality and sexuality how do those things all function in this world where so much of it is in the hands of this omniscient being right of this all-powerful kind of in control being and so a lot of it has to do with that quite so often how are yeah. we in control at the same time something else is mm-hmm. in control how exactly. does that happen 
That is a good question. And that's something that my book is questioning. And I don't honestly know that it gets to an answer. <laughs> I don't think they have to. I think they no. just have to open that world yeah. for somebody. Yeah. But um, why, don't, why don't you pick one and, and mm -hmm. maybe take us through uh, one of your favorites? Okay. Well, I'm going to read the, the poem that kind of opens the book. This is one of the first poems that I managed to get out when I was out of grad school. And I had been struggling for a long time to get something meaningful on the page. And I would say that the inspiration behind it, I'm ashamed to admit, was actually a boy that made me angry. <laughs> um, but in some ways it ended up, you know, so I was trying to write this real angry, you know, how dare you poem. And it ended up becoming this question about identity and the formation of woman and questioning how that came to be, right? And what really shaped us. You know, I'd like to believe it was something other than a rib, you know, from a man <laughs> that created woman, right? I would, I would love to believe that. Um, and so this poem is called, This Is How You Beg. With a trowel chipping bit by bit at the garden, you find a pair of canaries, your mother's long buried, fallen wild. Gone every muscle, wing, and feather tying the body together. In your hands, their skeletons like light slumped over a windowsill, broken-necked. According to scripture, all you need is faith the size of a claw to command whatever has left you to return. Be uprooted and planted here again in this cage I've built for you, you should say. Open your arms wide as if the hull of a long-lost ark were coming to shore itself against you. So often, your mouth feels like the sky in a dark, buttoned-up gown. Remember, that female bird wasn't built to sing, either, in accordance with science. Take her fibula and tibia, made perfect from perching. Take the radius and ulna from her clipped wings and replace his with hers. It should feel like you've rebuilt man from woman's most essential parts. This must be how God felt when he wrapped the rest of you around something as small as a man's rib and expected it to give you life. So you really make people think a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not drivel. You know, you, know you, have, um, you have a lot of lyricists today writing song lyrics mm -hmm. that, that are anybody could write them. Hey, baby, baby. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yeah. That's 90% that's of the song lyrics. Uh, you're not taking that approach. You're not worried about um, uh, easy accessibility. No, no. And I think one of the things that, that is important is you're, you're not necessarily writing for an audience, right? Or at least you shouldn't be. And there are, you know, I think accessibility is an important thing, but I also think that the poetry world is on fire, and I think it is becoming more embraced and more accepted. And, and there are so many different voices writing today that even if you think you don't like poetry, <laughs> you're going to find somebody who speaks to you, right? There's a local poet who, and I don't want to butcher his first lines, but it, he, his first poem in his newest book, Sean Thomas Dougherty, it was, you know, why do we do this? And it was because somebody has a wound, the shape of that poem that you've just written, right? And so I think that, you know, in that sense, there are going to be ways, you know, that if somebody wants something that is more accessible, they can find it. If they want something, it's going to be accessible to them if, it res if they respond to it, right? I think accessibility 
is such a subjective right. concept, right? Um, I'd say, you know, when I was working on this book, a lot of it was sort of, I'd say, beyond my control. You know, I, I was in this very strange period where I could barely keep up with myself. You know, I was I would go to a coffee shop at three in the afternoon on a Saturday and I'd be there until 2 a.m., right? And I would be reading all kinds of books, not even necessarily poetry books, just random books that I had gone to the library and I dragged my hand down a spine of political science books, right? And wherever I stopped, I picked up that book, you know, and I'd look through it and find random things that I that would trigger some kind of story or question or argument, right, in my mind, and I would kind of write it down and I'd write down the passage that inspired it. And, you know, a lot of poems in this book were even born that way, right? But so much of it was was just I, I honestly didn't know what I was doing, right? I was sitting down, some random image, word, phrase, something just hit me, and I'd write it down, and half the time I'd pull back and say, whoa, you know, where did that come from? Do I actually feel that way? You know, it, it wasn't something that I purposely sat down and said, well, I'm going to write a poem, and it's going to be about this, right? And I'm going to make sure that, you know, I use this word and that word, and it's going to be hard to, to understand, you know, you don't, you know, that wasn't really part of the process. Um, a lot of it really was creating those or, or engaging with other texts and questioning them and, and trying to figure out where my thoughts aligned with them and where my experiences aligned with them. And, and I think, you, you know, you'd ask the question, well, how do we, you know, be ourselves in a world where we're created by something else and something else is in control, right? And I think so much of it is through the intellect, right, that we provide, that, that, we, that we engage in. The creation of art, right? Um, event, making our own paths and, and really questioning. You know, I, I really do. I've always been a curious person. And so, cur you know, being curious endlessly is, uh, that's, I think, something that poets and you know writers are really good at right. <laughs> and and that's something that I think is a is a good way to kind of challenge you know what well you know also if you think about it um, you were just reading something just a couple of seconds ago mm -hmm. um, it's not all rhymey sing-songy stuff mm -hmm. a lot of people think that's what poetry has mm -hmm. to be and it's not um, but another th thing to consider is uh, if you look at musicians particularly uh, the academics of the 1940s mm -hmm. and the 50s and the, the creation of 12-tone and atonal music, a lot of that became an academic exercise mm -hmm. with very little... Mm -hmm. um, it was completely creative, don't get me wrong, but uh, it was, it was, the content was purposely there to become an academic study. Mm -hmm. uh, you had to write it exactly correctly. You had to use exactly the right formulas to make this happen. Mm -hmm. You can get that way with writing, mm -hmm. and you can get that way with with, uh, with poetry, especially if you try to make it uh, rhyme mm -hmm. and flow. Uh, are you considering rhyme and flow when you're writing this, or is it thought to thought to thought? Uh, do you through compose mm. when you write, or is it mm. uh, bunches of little thoughts that just kind of fit together? It depends on the poem. And is it an academic study? Mm. Mm. Good questions. I think that it could be a little bit of all of the above, right? I think each poem you're approaching is a different exercise. I, I don't personally employ rhyme purposely, right? It's often one of the things that I think to do well, it needs to be subtle, 
you know, especially today, it's not the William Shakespeare age anymore, right? Where it's the heavy end rhymes. Quite often, if I'm reading a poem, it doesn't, and it and it rhymes, you don't even realize it rhymes until the very end, right? It's so subtle, and it's not always the end-stopped rhyme of the line, right? So a lot of, for me, is it's not a, a matter of writing in a particular form or rhyme or meter, right? It's more image to image. Um, sometimes I can apply, you know, I, I think some of the ways I approach writing, especially now as I've grown a little bit older, um, it is a, a lot more analytical, a lot more um, perhaps academic. Thinking about employing other texts, engaging with those was certainly an academic kind of approach for me, but it was also a great way of being creative, of kind of unlocking my personality, right, and, and taking a risk. But I think, you know, if you want to, if you're trying to write something and, and it's just not happening, employing something rigid, right, like a form, making you, you know, write yourself, making yourself write in quatrains, employ slant rhymes, you know, finding ways to use specific words, a specific image, require yourself, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a poet who would teach a workshop at a summer, summer festival every year, and he would require his students to write poems using words that they would never think of, like cock and balls, you know, like they had to realize that language isn't always going to be pretty, and you don't want to necessarily always just write a pretty poem, right? There's going to be you, you almost have to force yourself into, sometimes, into an uncomfortable box, right, to, to free yourself in some ways. What a wonderful conversation we're having with our friend, author Anna Rose Welch. Such a wonderful conversation that we're going to have to continue it next month on another episode of Better Than Monkeys. I'm Brian Hanna, and I'd love for you to join me for part two of our interview with Anna Rose Welch next month on Better Than Monkeys here on WQLN Radio. Thank you so much for listening.